Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hunter Gatherers Podcast. My name is Phil. I am one of your hosts. Hunter Gatherers is a program about everything to do with hunter gatherers from the culture, the music, the uh, traditions, the plant knowledge, animal knowledge, the resource acquisition. Uh, we look into the prehistoric past of uh, our species, of humans, as well as contemporary hunter-gatherer peoples. And we speak to experts here every episode, uh, ranging from anthropologists to activists and artists. And on today's program, we have a very very interesting um, guest. His name is Gordon Clark, and he is the genius behind Nomad Architecture, a wonderful documentary series of videos that document the construction of shelters of various peoples from around the world. Um, He has visited very, very difficult to reach places. Uh, the the uh, Congo rainforest, the Eurasian steppe, the Siberian tundra, all to capture and bring us these wonderful videos of how people together build and construct with expert knowledge using natural materials, these incredibly beautiful shelters that perfectly fit into their environment and suit their needs. Now, um, Gordon joined us from England, um, where he was also a lecturer at a university. Uh, Tequin was in Malaysia as usual, and I w- am in Toronto. So I hope you enjoy this this uh, interview we did with Gordon Clark. And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to comment or send us an email. We would love to hear from you. How did you get into this? What made you want to record these and uh, how did you start to record them in the beginning? So the starting point is I of course am a trained architect and I was invited out to the Sinai Desert to work with a charity that was developing a school for some of the Bedouin nomads within the desert region and I was going out there maybe twice a year supporting uh, that as a project and uh, on one of those visits, I asked if we could actually go out into the desert and visit uh, some of the Bedouins actually living as they were. And I found something really remarkable in their tents. So traditionally, they weave uh, black cloth out of goat hair and camel hair into strips, and they stitch that together and they prop it up on sticks. Uh, and this is a tradition that goes back probably maybe 2,000 years. Uh, But what I found there was tents that were sewn out of old fertilizer sacks or bits of Chinese blanket or um, anything that could be found. And it just made me realize that we're at the edge of a huge phase of transition. Uh, And then we went to another region where actually they'd settled completely out of the tents. They'd built themselves little shacks out of, uh, they built, they made their own concrete blocks by a sort of deal they have. They'll swap a goat with a dam worker and they'll drive away with six bags of cement and then they'll mix it with desert sand and they make these very crude concrete blocks. And they built these little one room huts for themselves and their tents were literally just in heaps rotting, um, adjacent to their huts and they said well we're never going to be out again there's no more uh, grazing left in the desert the rains aren't coming everything is changing Uh, and then I just captured that flew home started to look up what the traditional tents were and I found that there was no record of it Mm. so uh, already this huge tradition of material culture uh, had disappeared without, and yes, there's a few tourist snaps and a few bits and pieces, but from the point of view of an architect, if you want to actually record uh, a nomadic structure, there are layers and layers of information that are embodied within them, from the weaving techniques and the style of the looms and the way in which things are sewn together and the way that poles are made, um, because every tent is an assemblage of 
actually thousands of years of cultural development. So a simple photo, even in an explorer's journal or a tourist photo or whatever, is just not providing the richness of information. So the next time that I went back out there, uh, we made it a real uh, sort of extension to the trip to actually start talking to these people, talking about why they were changing their materials, uh, trying to find even one person who still lived in a truly ancient um, style of tent. And, you know, they were quite happy. They didn't even realize that they were custodians, if you like, of this, uh, this globally important piece of culture. And for example, the fertilizer sacks that were just white uh, polypropylene, they said they much prefer them to the black tents because they're white, so they reflect the sunlight. So the tents are much cooler in summer and they're much lighter to transport. So why have this big, heavy, bulking mm. thing when actually the modern materials from their point of view are better? Until then, you go back five years later and you find that the desert is filled with shredded bits of plastic because, of course, they have no uh, permanence to them. Yeah. And, yeah, and there's no, they don't rot away, they don't, you know, they just sit there slowly polluting the planet. So mm -hmm. that was the starting point of the journey. And where did we go next? So the next one was to Tanzania to actually visit a group of hunter-gatherers there. The was it the Hadza? That was correct, yeah. Uh, and they uh, were, I mean, they were an absolutely beautiful group to work with. And they had over 70 years been forcibly settled three times um, because they knew that the whole region that they occupied was rich in minerals, it was rich mm. in fauna and flora. The government saw the land as being government land that was unfortunately occupied by some hunter-gatherers. The hunter-gatherers, of course, saw it as their land. Um, and they were settled by missionaries, they were settled by the government. At each time, they just wandered back into the bush again, set up again. But even there, things were starting to change because uh, there was a BBC documentary about them produced uh, and that exploded tourist um, visitation into the region, uh, exploded missionaries starting to work mm. in the region. It was just a huge, huge influx from the outside. So again, it just felt like I just needed to catch a moment. It's like taking a frame out of a development, because no architecture is static. And one could turn around and say that their huts are 100,000 years old in their design. But we don't know that. They could also be 100 years old uh, and simply spontaneously created them. So. Uh, so we recorded them, and then it started me thinking, well, actually, what is this tradition that we're working with here? Um, and you start reading what others have produced uh, in terms of the realm of vernacular architecture and find that vernacular architecture itself is fairly new concept. Uh, it was always seen as a sort of secondary, lesser a discipline to fine architecture, polite architecture, as they call it. Uh, and this notion that we can trace history by looking at the fingerprints of different architecture styles was completely new. Uh, so then I started saying, well, how many of these little round huts are left? And I made it my mission to go and visit the Sand Bushman and the Mercy and the, as many of them as we could. Uh, and we started to realize that there was a progression of ideas from the simplest. Uh, so the Sand Bushman, which are possibly recognized as being until recently one of the most authentic, uh, culturally authentic group of hunter-gatherers, um, were the only people, for example, who could show me how to build a hut 
without using any metal tools whatsoever. And even though they have metal tools within their community, and most of what you see now of the sand is a complete myth. I mean, what you see on National Geographic or uh, tribe documentaries is an entire creation of TV producers. And um, actually, they're all settled. They're all normal people wearing clothes, going to school. It's completely transformed. But they still had this memory going back probably 30 or 40 years uh, of how they did things before this sort of latest um, industrial invasion took place, if you like. So we worked for a while in Africa recording this um, hand-built shelter culture and then started to realize that uh, this was a huge, huge world. And there are certain key types of nomadic architecture that have been clearly documented. You know, yurts, for example, you can buy 20 different books on traditional yurts and how yurts were made and the interpretation of the motifs in the fabrics used in the woven tent bands for the yurts and you know there's an incredible amount of research done in there um, there are some for example the native american teepees which disappeared really in their tradition more than 100 years ago um, and there was a couple in the 1950s tried to recreate a teepee and they captured the last of the living memories of the elders um, back into that project but that was only one it was a Cheyenne Medicine Lodge they tried to create so so the point is we were in uh, researching North America and realized that there was not enough of the tradition left there to actually make it worthwhile. In fact, North America has a more interesting nomadic tradition amongst modern RV dwellers than it does amongst uh, Native Americans who for sure still build teepees and still have festivals and so on. Um, but that teepee is actually a modern 20th century invention. And you have to go back to some of the explorers. There was a chap, Edward Curtis, for example, who uh, traveled much around um, Midwest America photographing. Um, but even then you have to be careful because there were painters who went before and they were constantly romanticizing this image of the, the noble savage and the picking these incredibly decorated teepees to draw. But they had other agendas like trying to get British money to support um, expeditions. Mm -hmm. And so what you get is not really a true or authentic record. And the thing about all of these buildings is they are built out of natural materials. And when they cease to be used, they decay back into nature again. So archeologists can look at circles of stones, but you can't actually rebuild the tent from a little bit of evidence in a half and a circle. Um, because you don't even know, was it buffalo skin or was it caribou skin or was it this, that, or the, you know, this incredible, this richness of detail yeah. has completely disappeared from that culture. It's just like languages a lot where once they, in oral traditions where they stop to be uh, used, they stop to become um, vernacular, like you said, in the vernacular architecture with, with the oral traditions and things stop being practices, then, then they'll just disappear pretty much. There's no trace of them. Um, I like the the one video about the nests being potentially the first human dwellings um, as opposed to caves. I thought that was a really interesting video um, about how, well, yes, like just to reiterate your point, the nests would disappear or the, the huts and um, caves are, you know, they, they sort of stay locked in time as long as no one goes in there. The cave drawings are there, the artifacts remain, but the... Um, the presence of the uh, the nests, the, the huts, and so on will just disappear completely, and we'll sort of look back at our history in a different way, imagining it a different way, taking that into account. 
No, it's it's. I, I really love the videos, and um, it's it's great. It's very interesting to hear the stories behind them and how they came to be. Um, and uh, thinking about the the native, um, the, the ones of the plains and so on. Uh, many of the plains, the plains culture of the, um, hunting with the horse that was also a different. Uh, that changed. That changed as the horse became widely available, mm-hmm. and also. Um, I heard whole groups of um, whole groups would just pick up and take to the plains to hunt buffalo. So leaving their perhaps more wigwam-like um, dwellings and and uh, horticulture behind to become hunter hunters of the uh, the buffalo herds because it was just so so attractive, you know, this big resource of the meat and trade mm. goods, yeah, and guns that became available. So there again a shift in in uh, architecture must have happened too. After watching some of your videos, I I mean all of your videos, I went on and started binge watching other videos. Um Wampanoag um there's a really good Wampanoag uh wigwam shelter video about um I think the man who who works at the Wampanoag sort of museum who is himself a Wampanoag man uh, explains everything and how people people he knew still preferred to live in them up until the 60s or so on uh, until the government really drove everyone out of them Um, and that you know people would still like to live in those but they're not allowed to it's illegal the u.s government doesn't allow that so i don't know if there's anything you have to like to speak to that point about the people still choosing to live in them or the inability of people to live in them potentially? It's, it's an interesting question because the, um, in order to live in a nomadic shelter, you need to perpetuate a nomadic life. Otherwise what happens very quickly is that you become uh, yeah, you become fed up with a, the rain coming in. With the, the, the point is that every time you pitch a tent, um, you are looking after it. The process of maintenance, the process of care uh, comes. So you may re-pitch it and a pole will break. So that's the point when you'll replace the pole or a cover will tear. And that's the point where you'll find a new piece of skin and you'll stitch it in there. And this process of constant re-erection also means that the the tent is adapting. So if you're moving, say, from a uh, an extremely exposed windy region to a settled forested region, the tent itself will change. So if we stay with the conical tents, uh, it may be uh, steeply pitched in a uh, if they're expecting heavy snow, because that means that the poles are a little bit more vertical and the snow will pack up just the way the loads work. The snow will pack up, transmitting the load to the ground rather than onto the poles. On the other hand, if you're expecting a really strong gale, not only will you pitch it more shallowly, but if you're onto a tripod, you'll actually bend to, not bend, but align two of the legs of the tripod towards the wind. So it won't be an equal... 60 degree tripod it'll be skewed and they can reset all the poles that way and then all of the strength is taken sorry the poles aren't towards the wind the poles are away from the wind because the wind will hit the tent brace that load onto the back edge of the tent where it's got two instead of one tripod leg which means the whole tent stays up so they have worked out some incredibly sophisticated and subtle ways and the moment you settle into one single location um, that it may just keep its original conical form, but what you find that the uh, the way in which it is occupied and inhabited changes. Now, it's not for me to judge that. I'm not saying you know people live their lives the way that they want to live their lives, uh, but. I visited, for example, a group in uh, Siberia near the town of Salahard, uh, which had all been forcibly settled into little flats in the town. Uh, They were so unhappy, particularly the old people, that this one wonderful gentleman um, by the name of German found a piece of land and started building a a settled 
it's not a teepee then, it, the proto-teepee was called a tomb, so this is a Siberian one. So he was building this tomb settlement, bringing the old people back. And he'd done an incredible job, but this time they all had floorboards all the way through and a permanent stove in the middle. Um, and they had a proper dug toilet pit somewhere. And um, so he was trying to find this sort of intermediate zone between where I think the spirit of these tent life could stay alive for them whilst a little bit more modernity was there because yes they were getting old and life is quite hard if you live in a in a tent on the ground i think the also the greatest incompatibility of the uh, of the nomadic life is with the 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 legal and land tenure system of of the state so that's the problem and when when the last of the frontiers uh, the state um, frontiers, uh, the un, ungoverned regions have become governed. Well, then uh, everyone becomes settled and uh, has to pay taxes and there's no more room to um, to uh, roam and, and the resources are become scarce, unfortunately. And the children get taken away and re-educated and so on. I mean, I think there is only one nation state in the world, which is Mauritania, where the central government is actually derived from members of nomadic tribes. And in every single other state, you have got also an issue of ethnicity between the sedentary government population and the nomadic peoples who are occupying these uh, these pieces of land. And in some cases, it is really extreme. Um, you look at, say, China's attitude towards uh, Tibetan nomadism, and there they had, I think, around about 10 million nomads in Tibet uh, 10 or 15 years ago. And we are down to a handful now. And all of the land has been separated off with wire fences. And um, it's there is still a degree of transhumance. So they may have a winter quarters and a summer quarters, and they will move their yak, usually by truck now, between one and the other. Uh, but this notion of actual free movement has just been eroded and eroded um, in the name of civilization. And it's a real question, and it's a, a point of... I try not to take political sides in this, but I think there is a, a view propagated by the nation-states that they are alleviating poverty and bringing educational benefits to traditional nomadic people, which misses the fact that if you are nomadic and living off the land, it doesn't matter whether you earn nothing or a dollar a day or a thousand dollars a day, because actually you're living outside of a monetized economy. And similarly, it doesn't really matter if you can read and write, if you are able to read the language of the bush such that you can track an animal for four hours um, by looking at subtle signs. And I, you know, I've watched some of these hunter-gatherers in there tracking and they can read where I can't read, even though I can read squiggles on a printed page that they can't read. It's just a different form of education and a different form of language. So, reading. Well, reading, it's if, if you can read, well, there's an expectation that you have to follow the program as well. So choosing to be illiterate in a way is also a, a, a defense mechanism. Well, I don't understand what you want of me. So just and then th th once you it's like being a child, well, I'm, I don't want to make i'm not using this comparison to belittle anyone but um you know we give a lot of for, we forgive children for their you know well they don't understand you know but once you become an adult well I, I still don't want this but you have to because you're an adult and you should know better and so there's a this sort of um uh in in at least uh, i think james c scott in um his book um up was it called? Uh, I have it right here. The art of not being governed. He mentioned this too. That illiteracy is sort of a, a state evading strategy in in and of itself. And same with um, nomadism. And I've been doing a lot of talking. Uh, Teko, do you have any, any questions? I always tend to try and ask all the questions. And go ahead. Yeah. Well, I I think it's it's quite fascinating. 
that the parallels are so strong with the, uh, the communities here in Malaysia. And I, I'm really only uh, familiar with the, the situation in Malaysia, but it is absolutely the case that uh, love, uh, all these, uh, I, I work a lot with the Batek uh, Orang Asli. And yeah, like if similarly the cases that you mentioned in Africa, they have been settled for about 30 years, but many of them were born into a foraging community. And, and then the government uh, has settled them down, giving them these cement houses. And, uh, and oh, altruistically, you know, they, they, the government has thought this is probably what's uh, best for them. But um, one thing I found, and I, I, I wonder if you could uh, think of any parallels in the communities that you've been working with, are that the, there are many aspects of the housing and the housing scheme that uh, on the face of it, uh, you wouldn't think of. But uh, uh, when you really examine the context and in the long term, you realize that the, the traditional uh, housing system or that, that this whole idea of foraging rather than settling down uh, was actually a lot more sensible and sustainable. I'll just give one example uh, from my research about the uh, the impact of uh, elephants, which was completely, you know, they, the, the planners didn't think about elephants at all. They, they, they thought, all right, we'll settle them down, get them to plant crops, and then they'll, they'll, then, they'll be, uh, then they'll be able to join modern society. They'll have an income. But uh, the elephants uh, came along and loved the crops and they damaged the crops. And so many of these communities really suffering because all the, these crops that the government had invested in and they'd invested their time have been destroyed. And even the houses as well, the elephants come in and destroy the houses. Whereas, um, and this is, uh, this is the, the, the final point, is that uh, the traditional way in which they dealt with the elephants is that they've been very small groups, and so they can invade the elephants. If it so happened that they were in the same place as elephants, um, like during the fruiting season, for example, then they would make tree houses, so they'd be beyond the reach of the elephants. But of course, they don't have that option with these uh, fixed cement houses. But yeah, so my, my question was, did, did you see any parallels uh, so, in terms of suitability of housing? So I want to come at this from two different directions. So firstly, just to say, if you look collectively at the knowledge that is embodied within all of the world's nature-dwelling people, it is a resource that is probably as valuable as, let us say, the genetic material that lives in the rainforests. I think we're now quite comfortable with the idea that uh, we must preserve these wildernesses because they contain undiscovered secrets. And I think the material culture as a whole and the architectural culture is every bit as rich uh, in untapped and unrecorded knowledge. And it goes in a thousand different directions. So, for example, if you look at some uh, a tribe, the Dorze in Ethiopia, who are weaving bamboo um, and making these sort of huge beehive-shaped houses, and it's very, very different because in Malaysia, I understand there is bamboo being used, um, but it's used as a round pole, a sort of pole and lashing system um, from what I have seen. Then you look at the way in which the Dorze have used it by splitting it and pitting it and weaving it, and you start to realize actually there is an approach to sustainable housing. And every time you delve into why exactly have they come to the solutions that they've come to, you realize they have created a perfect fit of environment, culture, 
and economics, and by economics I mean material use, tool use, um, how resource. Much is it worth, yeah. yeah, resources. How much is it worth investing in building this house? Because if I'm going to be here for three weeks, I'll knock it up quick. If I'm going to be here for three years, I'll put a little bit more in. But you get this balance of environment because they are often extremely sensitively adjusting. Yes. We've heard the case of elephants. Um, you go up to Siberia and you're moving between being about minus 40 degrees with howling blizzards in the winter and plus 20 degrees with mosquito infested swamps in the summer. And I've been there at both times and survival is a tough whether you are being eaten alive by these mozzies or frozen to death by the, the winds. And yet they have one form of architecture that is actually designed in a way that it can adapt between these two extreme um, zones and it's always pleasant and comfortable to live in. So just by penetrating deeply into these questions, um, and when you start to look, so let's go a little bit further into this. So their winter one has a double layer of uh, caribou skin cover, and one skin faces inwards with the hair, the other outwards with the hair. And when they take the tent down, the inside one gets wrapped up very quickly, so all the warmth is trapped between those wow. hairs. So at the end of the day, when they come to put the tent up, actually it's got all of that uh, embodied heat ready, so they're not heating a cold space, they're heating that a warm space. That is brilliant. That's the absolutely out, brilliant. It is brilliant, isn't it? You know. Yeah. And the, the outside one, the hairs, they always put the skins, the pelts, the right way up as the reindeer would be. So when the snow comes, because the reindeer has evolved to actually shed snow naturally off its back. So again, as the blizzard comes, it tends, the snowflakes tend to whip off rather than loading onto. So they've got this completely and totally organized. And the other thing that we are asking is how did these people come to design these things? Because we as architects go and we get an education and we learn the rules of design and the rules of materials and the rules of thermal performance and we apply those rules into buildings. Whereas traditional people seem to have a completely different design process and uh, it's a community-based design process and the design does not live in a pattern book or drawn on paper, particularly if you look at the African nomads, they will leave behind their huts, they'll walk to a new site and they will erect the huts completely fresh out of memory. So there the design is passing into uh, a sort of gestalt memory and then back out into the physical world, back into memory and you likened it to language, and it's a very, very apt um, analogy because actually what you see is that the children aged three, four, five, or even a baby slung on a mum's back are taking part in building. They are learning architecture at the same time they are learning to talk. So this is as embodied in their psyche and their consciousness as language is, um, which is why it takes an outsider to actually come in and record it because there's so many places that I've been to and they can't understand why I'm asking these stupid questions um, because to them, <laughs> it's, it's like asking, um, how do you talk? How do you construct a sentence? Um, or perhaps now, like, how do you operate a, a, a phone? I mean, yeah. you just, no one's teaching anyone. There's no school to how to use these cell phones, but we all sort of know, well, you swipe this and that, but how did we learn it? We just sort of picked it up and someone showed us and you started from young and then the new model came and another one. Oh, sorry to interrupt, but there was a, you started covering it and that's that the, the um, we inherit so much and, and these, uh, this knowledge and also the material uh, resources themselves the tools, um, the older, the tent that, be, you know, you inherit from someone else and then you make another, um, uh, the, the new skins for it or something. All, if you had to start from scratch, it would be 
it'd be overwhelming. I mean, as someone who's tried to learn just how to pick some things in the forest and eat them and, and make the simple shelters, it's, it's really daunting and difficult. So once the lineage is broken, it's on, it's really, you're, you losing hundreds, thousands of years of, of accumulated knowledge and passed on knowledge that is specifically, um, arisen in this environment to, to suit it perfectly, as you, as you pointed out. I mean, let me give you one example. Let's go back to the sand bushman again and these nests, um, because the reason I made that linkage to nests is because a traditional uh, primate nest has a primary structure of the branches they weave together, a secondary structure of twigs that they put into those branches, and they then line it with leaves. Uh, and the sand bushmen build a primary structure of branches that, okay, the difference is they've broken them off and put them in the ground, uh, but they then weave them together. They then break off a secondary structure of branches. But what was fascinating to me, and I hadn't expected to see, was that those secondary branches are actually covered in fine fine thorns and it's the last thing that you would expect you like, well this is a house you're going to live in it why you know have this nasty thorny stuff all over it and that was explained when you saw that they were thatching them with grass without tools you cannot cut the grass off at the base so the simplest way to harvest the grass is to pull it up by its roots uh, then you hammer the roots with a stone to flatten it out. You then put that upside down onto the outside of the hut, and those flattened roots enmesh into this network of thorns, uh, which then pin the thatch tightly onto the surface of the of the hut. Now, if I was to come in get it, with a group of students as an architect with no knowledge into that bush situation, we would be there for months mucking around. And in the end, we'd send somebody off to a hardware shop to go and buy a load of nylon cord or something. And we'd be wrapping it around and trying to strap things down because the knowledge has come one small moat of learning at a time. And this I love. So presumably it all blew away in a storm, except one patch stayed where they'd happen to have a thorny bit. So then they go, oh, look, let's put some more thorny bits. And the next time a storm comes, this one hut doesn't blow away or, or lose all of its thatch. So then all the neighbors say, hey, why don't we all use thorny bits too? And you see this wonderful way in which knowledge um, with a mixture of intelligent decision-making and chance happenings builds an architecture step by step, century by century, until it's this beautiful fit to the materials and the climate and the people and their culture. And it adapts. And what I've seen over again is come back to these Bedouin tents. Well, actually, now there's suddenly these huge fertilizer sacks, redundant. Actually, we like this material. Let's adapt to it. And then they realize a few years later, actually, it's just in shreds all over the place. So let's go to Chinese blankets instead. And then they realize that actually they're heavier. So you come all the way back to your black woven cloth again, because actually that was the material that has fitted this climate. Uh, and you can see this again in Siberia. <laughs> Several architects have had a go at designing the perfect replacement for the Siberian tent. Uh, and I'm due, hopefully, COVID permitting to go to Chukotka uh, this autumn. And there, again, there's been some, some leading architects, some leaning material scientists have thrown at their local governments these incredible new pop-it-up-in-five-minute dome structures. And the local uh, peoples all say, well, they're fine for about two months, and then this... <laughs> joint snaps or this material tears and if it tears we've got no way of repairing it but actually the reindeer skin cover it's even sewn using thread that is taken from the sinews down the back of the reindeer 
but you know, there's only one modern part of a tent, and that is a needle, because making bone needles is a real pain if you can get a modern metal needle. But apart from that, it's everything is derived from the environment. Everything's repairable from within the environment, uh, and everything contains happy people <laughs> because they feel like they have this cultural and architectural connectivity to the place that they come from. Yeah, I wanted to ask you actually about that, about how not just the material, I mean, how or how the in material influences the social structure when we're looking at an individual, I mean, in the individual, The one in um, the Doza, was it? The, the woven beehive structure? I mean, that houses multiple families. And of course, in our modern, you know, our state um, approved housing, it's one family per house, tax paying unit. Uh, whereas the nomad uh, different cultures would have much different social arrangements. The sun having um, different uh, huts all facing inward. And, and similarly in Malaysia, where, you know, the. Um, nomadic hunter-gatherer people that we're familiar with also had lean-to shelters that also all faced inwards. Um, so that really changes the dynamic of the social um, and the social uh, network or the social world. And I wanted to know if you could speak to that about uh, and what you've noticed and experienced. I mean, what you've touched on there is that it's not enough just to study a piece of architecture because the architecture is part of a settlement and the settlement is part of a location. And what you find is that there are different boundaries, I think, within human consciousness. So we're going to get right into, I'm an architect, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an anthropologist, but architects are always psychologists and anthropologists. Uh, You have to be, to, even if you're designing architect, you have to understand how these things work. And if you look at the human psyche, you realize that we have the notion of I, of the self, we have the notion of family, uh, which in the West is increasingly small nuclear family, mother, father, children, possibly grandparents, and that is the nucleus with which we're working. And then Typically in the West, you jump into either national identity or racial identity. And there's a lot of confusion, a lot of tension in the world, I think, because we're not quite sure whether racial identity or national identity should take priority. Uh, if you are in, um, let us say, pre-industrial cultures, they may have a completely different set of uh, onion skins that they wrap around their uh, group identity. And for example, um, yeah, if you take the sand bushmen or you take the nenet herders or whatever, they have ideas of the extended family as being the unit. They have incredibly clear rules by which people will come and join. Interestingly opposite, so the son, the husband will come and join the wife's family and he must live there for something like 10 years, almost as a slave or proving himself as a hunter in this wife's family before he is really accepted. Uh, you go up to the, uh, the Nenets in, the, uh, in Siberia and it will almost always be the woman who will come into the husband's family. And again, she is proving herself. She's cooking, she's looking after, she's caring for. Uh, but those notions of familyhood in Siberia, it's defined by the skin of the tent. Uh, and again, Chukotka, where I'm going, again, might have four or five tents within a big tent with separate families, but all into, you'll find that there'll be, you know, they'll all be brothers and a father, or there will be a familial connectivity there. Um, or you go to the San Bushman, and actually that tented space is formed by the inner face of the huts. And they actually describe the huts really almost as like storage units, because most of them even sleep between the central half and the hut. 
So the rules by which you come in and the rules by which you occupy space within this encampment are completely different to the way in which we in the West think, here is our castle, here is our moat, here's our fence around our garden, here's our township. Um, because the moment you settle, you start to take ownership of land in a way that is not even vaguely in the consciousness of uh, most mobile people. Before I have, I could ask you many, many more questions, but I know you have some questions for us as well. We wanted to speak about also possibilities of doing some collaborations in Malaysia, potentially Canada. So uh, maybe I'll just ask both of you if, if uh, I, I won't continue with more questions, but maybe Tequin and Gordon, if you have something to uh, ask. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to ask Gordon uh, what kind of uh, uh, what. Uh, what in particular you'd be interested in in Malaysia? Yeah, I'm, I have worked with several communities, and I'm based in Peninsula Malaysia, but I, I do a lot of work in Sabah, in in Borneo as well. And uh, is there anything in particular that you'd be interested? In? I don't know much. Oh about, yes, <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe if you can like give me a few. Uh, uh, yeah, you can uh, ask a bit about. Um, my experiences, I'll be happy to share. So, the, the way that I work is a sort of tiered process. And this first thing is trying to understand what on earth people are building and where they are building it. And if you rely on scientific papers or published books, you're usually 20 or 30 years out of date. So you then go to uh, tourist blogs and vlogs on the internet, uh, or I can't rely on the BBC and National Geographic because that's all completely set up for the cameras. So my first delving is always into where what is alive as a physical object and what is alive as a memory object. And I want to, if we have got it alive as a physical object, I'm trying to understand why it is and how it changes. Because uh, you know, sometimes I'll go for a week and I'll get this snapshot and then Somebody will send me a photo of it six months later and you realize it's transformed completely because it's the rainy season or something. So trying to understand who is where and what they're building is the first thing. And of that, I know, for example, that there are two groups, the Penan and the Punan. And my understanding is that the Penan are more or less settled, uh, whereas the Punan are much more remote and harder to access, but are possibly still uh, living in a jungle environment, still building their traditional dwellings. Do you know anything about this? Yeah. Okay. So uh, the Penan and the Bunan are, are are distinct groups, and they both live in uh, in the heart of Borneo. Um, it's not so much that the Punan are more remote, because there, there are some groups of Punan in Indonesia and some in uh, in Sarawak. Um, the Penan are mostly in Sarawak. There are two groups of Penan, Eastern and Western. You're right that most of them have been settled, but there are some groups, from what I gather, less than 100 individuals who are still um, uh, foraging. And, and and not settled. But I would add that even the settled groups do spend a lot of time foraging. They're not uh, you know, they're not entirely settled. They would go off on uh, on hunting and gathering trips for several weeks at a time before re returning to the settlements. I mean, uh, the, the key key for me is do they? So if we take the fact that everything has. It's much more complex than this, but I would say a pre-industrial, a 
transformed through industrial and a settled by industrial state in the architecture. So you go to pre-industrial and there's nominal use of metals. Everybody still remembers how to peel a bit of bark and use it for lashing and so on. And you go to the transformed by industrial and already there's a lot of machetes and wire and so on. I'm not saying one is more interesting or more valuable than the other, but it's nice to try and catch the pre-industrial because that is the bit that uh, is disappearing fastest. Um, and again, I'm not judging. People are entitled to their machetes. You know, there's no, but so if we were looking at those groups, but also the other thing is that within those two groups, the Penan and the Punan, there might be 12 different architectures. So how, so my first question is, how do we do some pre-expedition research? Uh, all I know is that they're lashing together poles and putting a bit of a roof over the top of them, and it's a very, very temporary form of architecture that they're building. But what would be the route by which we could do some better research into who is where, what they're building, and how do we then gain access to go and do a detailed record of it? Uh, we don't yeah, have I've, your I've, audio too. Yeah, there. thanks. Yeah, I've been working with several groups, mostly in the peninsula, and I have, I have kind of casually observed what uh, they're building. Um, I would say they're probably three different uh, and quite. The quite distinct types of structures that they build. I, I mentioned earlier that the government has given almost all of them permanent housing, mm -hmm. and which is built for them by outsiders. But what uh, uh, what happens is that in addition to those homes, they will build houses in the same village, but next to the, uh, and supplementing the, the brick houses, there will, there will be a traditional uh, house. And the reason for that would be that, or maybe they, they want the extra space, but it's also much cooler uh, in some parts of the year to, uh, to live in these um, houses built from natural material uh, and houses which have um, well they use a, a type of palm uh, a kind of uh, in mm -hmm. woven thatch palm called ratan uh, mm -hmm. for, uh, or atap for the houses uh, for the roofs and so they um, so they do that and the the second kind are these um very, very temporary shelters that they will build when they're going on uh, gathering trips. And I've, uh, I've, I've been with them on, um, on some of these trips and they're, they're two different types. One, uh, they're entirely the traditional kind, uh, which should, it's, it's just simply, uh, um, uh, they will have one um, spa and uh, uh, two uprights and then they will uh, lean uh, they will put uh, it's, a, it's a lean to kind of thing mm -hmm, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not I'm by no means an architect but uh, what uh, they often do is they will bring with them a tarpaulin sheet uh, for, mm -hmm. the, for the roof rather than uh, uh, use the the traditional um, roofing. So the, those, the, both of those are, are being done, and I'm, it'd be interesting to speak to them and, uh, and see why, why they would choose one or the other, and mm. I'm, not entirely, I'm not entirely sure. They, they, almost all of them do use uh, parangs, machetes, but they have done for hundreds of years. You know, mm. Of course, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, and then um, the third kind is, well, we, we do have many different types of groups. So that, uh, in, in the peninsula alone, you do have traditional foragers. Uh, they are mostly in the lowlands, but in the, in the highlands, there are farmers, the Sweden farmers, and the Sweden farmers have slightly more uh, permanent um, houses that they would use for several years before um, uh, moving to a slightly different location and maybe build a new house. And so that architecture is slightly more advanced, but it's still really, the houses that I've seen 
they they still really do use um, extensive uh, use of traditional uh, material rather than um, I think occasionally they would use zinc for the roofing, but that's uh, that that's by no means uh, all of the houses and uh, yeah. Um, I mean, part of it, again, you know, if zinc's there, it's fine. But what is interesting is that whilst they still have the knowledge to catch it, I mean, twice now. So let me give you two examples. One is in northern Cameroon, where they build these beehive houses out of a shell of clay, which is about five centimetres thick. Um, and I had to risk life and limb because Boko Haram is very active in this area, but we raced in there. Uh, I saw there's only one left in existence and there's only one 70-year-old man who knows how to build these. And when he dies, uh, the last one will crumble because there's no talk. They, they were only maintaining them as part of a tourist industry because they've all moved into little square tin-roofed huts. You know. um, and I have still been trying to put together a group. Uh, we were looking at bringing a group of students over to train local young people in the technique, uh, but the government will not let us in because of the, um, it's one thing me going in under the radar as a secret tourist researcher, and it's another thing bringing a whole group of people in. Mm -hmm. But so what I would be very keen to do with, you know, uh, with any of the groups, you know, and particularly do you have these longhouses still? I know in central Borneo, there's some wonderful longhouses. This is very Iban, um, the Iban uh, longhouses are very common and they, mm. the Penan are being settled into longhouses um, that they generally mm, yeah. own. Yeah, the community that I work with in Sabah, unfortunately, I think there's only one traditional longhouse left. Uh, yeah, that's um, in the southern part of Sabah. They're, they're kind of a, a diet group. Um, so the longhouses are dying out. And in peninsular Malaysia, they don't have uh, long. There's, there isn't really a longhouse tradition. No, I just thought uh, to make a point about the uh, peninsular Malaysian um, foraging groups that... Um, some of the, the practices of building the, the foraging shelters, um, that's still very much in use. I mean, they'll spend time in the, in the village for months and then they'll go to the, to the woods for a month or, or a few weeks and they'll build these shelters and, and live in um, several families potentially together uh, in a way that was potentially uh, pre- yeah. Yeah, the ones that you were saying would set up in a circle with everybody facing into yep. the middle. Was that, yeah. Yeah, yes, okay. yes. Yeah, that, that would be fascinating. Yeah. So I, I'd add one point to what uh, Phil said, is in that this community that both Phil and I have been uh, working with uh, or friendly with, they have uh, only just started sending their children to school, only literally last year. And so... Um, all of the all of the youth of the village they grew up uh, almost all of them uh, have uh, really this uh, the knowledge is being transmitted and they still have access to the majority of their natural material from the forest i mean it, it is on the decline but uh, malaysia still has is, is has about half of uh, our forests left and so we do have extensive areas of forests and so um, um my uh i again i I'm, I'm not entirely confident on this but my feeling is that there is it's not a critical point uh, yet in that there is still a lot of knowledge on on all of these building uh, techniques and um, the way we like sorry yeah. the way we like to work is ideally i come over there for you know, whatever is the right time. Sometimes it's four days, sometimes it's four weeks, but usually about eight or ten days. And not only do I do a lot of recording, it is always at its most successful if you can get one, usually it's a sort of teenager or young 20-somebody who's actually taken the trouble to learn 
usually English, so that they can become uh, a spokesperson. Uh, but quite often what I've done is as I have taught them how to do the recording, and quite often I have left a small camera behind with them. Um, I don't always get the results back, you know, often you hear nothing back, but, but it works beautifully if you can leave a little video stroke stills camera and get them to carry on so that each time they go, each time, and it's not just the architecture they can record then, it's, you know, how we caught this boar and skinned it and used every last part for this, or, and they start to get into, and there are a couple of people who are now um, YouTube vloggers, uh, using cameras that I've left behind and they start to actually own their own culture and realize that it is going to change and the best they are going to end up with is at least a thorough record of how it was before it changed um, because so many of these communities carry a sort of heart sadness um, you know, there are Sami communities in northern uh, Europe who have no idea. They've got these old photos, but no idea how to make these traditional houses they lived in. And so, so that is one. There are two other groups that I have on my radar, but I'm open to anything. Uh, another is the Korowai, who are in West Papa, who build these incredible tree houses. Uh, now, I presume, is that to avoid elephants? What's the reason behind that? Yeah, so I, I, I did a bit of research on this. Mm. And so the elephant tree houses are normally just above the reach of elephants. But uh, in, um, in Papua, they're much higher. And that's, yeah. to, that's to avoid people. Yeah, avoid other people, so like uh, cannibals and uh, warring tribes. There are no elephants on the island of Papua. And so I, I have a theory related to that, but it's a bit besides the point. But yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's quite a different type of treehouse. Yeah, I mean, the point is I have a, a tourist agency there, supposedly locally run, who say they can take me there. Um, they want about $25,000 for doing it, which is more than I've ever paid. I don't normally go through tourist agencies. I just uh, was fishing for ideas. Uh, but it would be so much nicer if we could do this in conversation with a local university or a local indigenous rights group or somebody who, uh, again, it becomes more of a partnership about valuing and recording unless this Western guy with all his fancy kit coming in, stealing all the uh, material knowledge from the local people. So again, it's a question. I know West Papua is not where you're based, but if you have any contacts or colleagues there who might want to work, that would be interesting. Yeah. No, sorry, I don't have any contacts okay. there. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, it, it sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I did watch one of the BBC documentaries uh, yeah. on that. Uh, well, really stunning uh, yeah. and <laughs> jaw-dropping. But no, uh, it, yeah. But, uh, it's, but It's not the first time it's been recorded, but it's the first time an architect. Hmm. And it makes a difference. It's incredible. Once, Because the BBC go there wanting the incredible camera footage and I go there wanting the knowledge you know so mine is always an adjunct to actually understanding and I yeah can I run on to a third one again maybe you won't know anything about it whatsoever but I have been searching the leper leper of the Bajos sea gypsies uh, I have been around uh, Sulawesi and some of the archipelago islands and all we found was things rotting on the shore uh, I put it up on one of my videos saying help where do I find these and I've had loads of responses saying go to this bit of the Philippines and when you look at it this is one of the most terrorist controlled <laughs> dangerous areas for westerners to go and then somebody I'm going to have to have a quick look just bear with me a second um but somebody showed me a tiny little settlement on the tip 
on the far eastern tip of Borneo. Yeah, Sampurna. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'll interrupt you there. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it, uh, it's the southeast corner of Sabah. I do have some friends working with the com- who have uh, been working with the community. Um, yeah, it's a um, in- very interesting case because they uh, a lot of them are stateless and there are rights issues related to that. I haven't worked with them myself. But I, I, um, I, I do find them really fascinating. And uh, Sabah is in Malaysia, and so it's not as dangerous as Philippines. Although what has been happening on and off for the last 10 years is that the Filipinos have come across to Sabah and kidnapped foreigners and brought them back to the Philippines. And so okay. it's, it, it, it is still an issue. There are still... Uh, dangers of that part of Malaysia. But uh, having said that, I would say it's, it's probably much safer than Philippines itself. Yeah. So, yeah. That, do you that, think we could track down a boat builder who still has a carving skill? Because they're traditional. I mean, there are two sorts again, or maybe more, but there were some fairly simple ones that just had a sail in the middle and a little canvas over the top. But then there are these which, I mean, increasingly I've seen them used more for like tourist regattas than actually lived on boats. Yeah. But it would be nice to find a really good quality boat builder yeah. who would, again, let us go for part of it. We find somebody local who will film the entire process, record it for us. If you had any route into that, that would also be fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know, but I can uh, certainly give you some contacts. Okay, fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, and anything else, anybody else who knows me? <laughs> yeah, any other architectures that are, because again, we see what others have covered, but if buried away in the depth somewhere, there is something. Uh, I tend to find amazement in other things that people find a little bit uh, boring. It's like the little African uh, sort of dome houses. I don't think anybody realized the richness that is within all the different variants. So if you come across any photo of anything that you think, oh, then just ping it over to me and we'll take a look and see what we can do with it. We'll do. Yeah, definitely. Okay. But we've... um... Speaking for uh, quite a while, I think yep. it's getting late over there uh, for Techwin. So sure. um, I, I could I could keep asking more questions, but uh, maybe we'll end it off here. It's been it's been wonderful talking yep. to you, Gordon. Thank you so much for for joining us. Okay, it is my pleasure.